Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Faye. Sue and Peter are zooming in, as always, uh, for our conversation today with uh, a guest we're very excited to have on. Um, will be known to many of our listeners, I think. Lutheran pastor, founder of House for All Sinners and Saints in Colorado, and author of such books as Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People, Pastrix, The Cranky, Beautiful Faith of a Sinner and Saint, and most recently, Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. Zooming in from Colorado, Nadia Boltzweber, thanks for joining the On The Way podcast. Yeah, happy to be here. Uh, look, we are so excited to to explore the, the topic of um, your latest book, Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. Um, I've already mentioned to you just before we started recording that this book was actually uh, therapy for me in many ways. Um, you unpack so much of the baggage around sex, sexuality, gender, and body, uh, that the church has given people. Um, and you do it with, with such clarity and honesty and love. It's, it's just extraordinary. I know that the book's been out for over a year now. What has the response been to it? It's interesting. It's been different than my other books in the fact that I think it's had a greater impact but on a smaller number of people, if that makes sense. That right, okay. there, there are people out in the world for whom this book was definitely written for them. And when those people get a hold of it, um, it, has a, it has a big impact, but it, it was not my most broadly popular book. Um, and so I think it, it brings up the issue of like, what, what, it, what does an author consider to be success like is it the number of books that were sold i mean it was still a new york times bestseller but it wasn't like accidental saints which had a much broader appeal and so um but but it's the book i think i'm the proudest of of mm. the books that i wrote because um it was such a deeply pastoral response to a particular type of pain that i had and so many people I knew had and it was a like pastoral attempt to address that and so yeah so in my mind it's been um it was it's a beautiful it's a beautiful book but also I mean it really it upset a lot of people too because there's a sort of I mean if if Christians can't sort of define themselves as well we're the people who don't do this or who aren't you know, in favor of that, then what's the point of being Christian? So, I mean, there are people who that's their sort of tribal marker is that um, they like, they think all sex outside of heterosexual marriage is a sin. And so when you cling to that as an identity, it um, you're not going to have a great reaction when a public theologian says, well, maybe not. <laughs> well, look, it, it is, um, as I mentioned, when I was listening to the audiobook of it, um, as I was driving around with, with my fiance Bronte, there were a number of times that we almost had to, to pull over the car because it felt like some of the most foundational wounding and baggage that we had both, you know, been given by well-intentioned, kind people on the whole, but in the church growing yeah. up was finally being named and articulated And I'm sure for so many listeners of our podcast as well, this is an area that that we haven't often gone before on the podcast, but that is so tied into everything we talk about. Where was the origin of this book for you? You know, obviously it is such a central topic for people who've grown up in the church, but what was it for you that made you think, I need to do this, that I can't wait any longer. This has to be said. Well, I was actually 
supposed to be writing a different book at the time. Um, and what happened was I, um, when I got divorced, well, when I was ordained, I had in the ELCA, which is a progr fairly progressive Lutheran denomination, I, I still had to sign a paper when I was ordained that said that I promised to be uh, faithful in marriage or celibate in singleness. And this is like one of the most progressive denominations. It was still something you had to sign back then. And I didn't think much of it because I was married at the time and, and, and was monogamous. But the truth of the matter is that um, while I was married like somebody who would never deserve for me to say anything bad about him because he's, he's a really good man, a great dad. We, we had such, um, there was no intimacy in our marriage at all. I mean, there, we were roommates who co-parented. And so there was this sort of hidden sadness in my life of being in a sexless marriage in which I didn't even have an emotional connection to the person that I was with. And there was like a cost to it. There was part of me that was so defended and so hardened because, because of that experience, like to survive it, to do the work I did and to survive it, I had to kind of have this armor. And um, when we, we went through a very amicable divorce, like there were no lawyers involved and um, you know, we're very respectful of each other. But when that happened, I got together and I got together with uh, Eric, who's my partner now. Um, we did connect really intensely on so many levels. Um, if you read the book, you know that we were together in 93 and 94. So we, 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 we had this connection and then we didn't have anything to do with each other. I had no contact. I just happened to bump into a roommate of his from back in the day who was like, you guys are both divorced. You should have dinner. And I was like, yeah, we should have dinner. And so we, um, we've been together since that night we had dinner. But um, so, when I got together with Eric and we did have these intense connections, including a really beautiful um, sexual connection with each other, it, it was so liberating. It felt like an exfoliation of my whole spirit, to be honest. It was like everything felt like it opened up in me. We were only together for a few weeks before I had to go to Europe and and support these books for it. So I was on tour out of the country for a few weeks and I, everything was just spinning in my mind and in my body and my heart. And I was just like, what's going on? And I was in London and I just thought, why did the church insist I sign a piece of paper to say that I would not have this, mm. that I wouldn't have this experience? I, like, how is it? better for my congregation if i'm not getting laid that makes no sense to me that can't be true like i was clearly more present to myself in the world by this and so i just found it puzzling and i texted eric and he's a heathen he's not christian at all and i said hey can you hop on um skype I have to ask you something. And he's like, well, it's, you know, six in the morning here, but yes, okay. So we hop on and I say, why do you think that the church has tried to control sex for so long? And without skipping a beat, he said, um, I just always assumed that the church saw sex as its competition. And that's, and I was like, oh, I'm writing a book. I am writing a book. Like that, it was literally, 
this moment where I was like, screw that other book I'm supposed to be writing. I'm writing this book. And so I just became completely obsessed with the question because I knew he was right in my, the exploration that I had to go through to, and, and the study and the interviews and all that process to write a book was me figuring out why he was right. I knew he was right. And I had to kind of explore why that was. And so then I just, I, I sent this message to my congregation and said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm think I'm going to write a book about sex and Christianity. And would, is there anyone in the congregation that would be willing to have coffee with me and to tell me like, your experience with that like what message did you receive from the church about sex and the body and gender and how did that message affect you and how have you navigated your adult life and i was terrified to ask the question and i was shocked at how many people immediately said oh yeah i'd love to have that conversation with you like they were waiting to be asked and i because i was in this like sexless marriage for so long to be honest, I was so shut down to my own sexuality that I became almost prudish and that I didn't want to be around the conversation. It was very difficult for me to be in any kind of conversations about sex. Sexuality was fine. Like sexual orientation, no big deal. Gender, great. But sex, I couldn't, like even people joking about sex or talking about, it made me uncomfortable because I was so sad that it wasn't part of my life. And so um, anyway, it took me a while to sort of warm up. And now I am a totally non-anxious presence around any conversations around sex practically because of those interviews. But that's, that's how it came about. Yeah, that's amazing. That that is one of the, the the most amazing parts of the book. I think the that where you wrote about the church viewing sex as its competition, because you know yeah. that there does seem to be for everyone who's grown up in the church. I think, but and those who've come in older too. But you can detect this fear around sex. This almost like it's this powerful thing over to the left, and we just need to be so careful mm-hmm. that it doesn't ever. I mean, the analogy you use that it is great is the the one that churches have passed on damagingly is the fireplace one. You know, this this fire is safe in a fireplace where we can contain it, but if it gets out, it could be a wildfire and it could actually burn things down and it could be quite dangerous. And you know, so this leads to all the stuff you write about, all the stuff that um, we've, you know, I, I can talk from experience about signing the True Love Waits card when I was in grade seven at mm-hmm. youth group. Um, you know, being told that I remember the girls being told that they were like used band-aids if they had more than one sexual partner that, that would lose the stickiness um, oh, over time. Oh, all, yeah, all this sort of so we we should bring you in, Nadia. Peter never grew up in this sort of Christianity, so all of this stuff is new to him. He didn't. He doesn't. He probably isn't as aware of um, the sort of stuff that goes around at youth groups yeah. and youth camps and all that. But. It is, um, it, it is so, so damaging at such a foundational age. And I think there's, you know, more than one entire generation that has had a part of themselves. Great analogy you use, Nadia. It's, it's like they get to adulthood and they've got frayed wires that they're trying to connect. Um, something yeah. has been severed inside of them. So I imagine, I imagine as people having these conversations with you and as you started speaking more and more about the book, you, you could hear this resonance, almost this, this deep, soulful cry out from people, finally someone is going to talk about this. Yeah, yeah, 
Did you guys end up with that book, um, I Kiss Dating Goodbye? Yeah. I, I know of it. I haven't ever read it. That was in our church. <laughs> that was there. That was. So I don't know if you guys listen to my podcast, The Confessional, but um, the third season comes out in a couple of weeks. And the third interview is with Joshua Harris, who wrote oh, that wow. book. Oh, wow. Wow. And it ends up, I mean, it's a very fascinating story, but he was as much a victim of the purity culture as the people who he victimized within it, you know, mm. it, um, and he, and he really doesn't believe all that stuff anymore. And, and um, he's lovely. He's a lovely man, but yeah. But also if I'm going to have a place of compassion for how did it get that extreme? Um, it really did kind of come about after the AIDS crisis. And I think that, the most compassionate I can be about it is I think parents were like, oh my gosh, sex can actually kill our kids right now. And so I think that um, if you're going to say it came from in any way a good place, I would say that was probably it. Um, it overshot it and caused its own damage. But I think that was the impulse that uh, had to do with the AIDS crisis. Well, I, I want to ask you, uh, Nadi, if you can just un uh, unpack one particular part of the book. You, you get to this early on and it becomes a guiding framework throughout the, um, the book itself where you talk about how society's sexual ethic is sort of centered around mutuality and consent. You say that a Christian sexual ethic introduces concern mm -hmm. to the mix and, and that, yeah. you know, instead of shutting everything down and fear being the sexual ethic, that instead the sexual ethic is concern as a Christian. Could you explore a little bit yeah. about what you mean by a sexual ethic of concern? Well, the reason I did that is because um, Martin Luther in, in the small catechism in his explication of the Ten Commandments um, does this very Jesus-y rhetorical move where he basically had said, like, it, to really honor a commandment, is more than avoiding the bad thing. It always implies the presence of a good thing as well. So for instance, if you look at the commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness, um, I always thought that just means don't like lie in court about someone, <laughs> right? Um, and so I'm like, that's very easy to check off the list. Like I definitely didn't you know, lie in court about somebody today. But he says, no, it's not just that you don't slander, that like you should love and fear God so that you do not, um, you know, pull someone's name into the mud, that you don't slander them, that you don't speak ill of them. But you should um, speak well of your neighbor. And here's the clincher. Ex explain their actions in the kindest, most generous way possible. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know if I've ever done that. <laughs> so, so, so when you when you attempt to think, oh, I'm so prideful because I'm nailing this commandment. If you read Luther's Catechism, you know you'll. He's always like not so fast. And but it's more than the absence of harm; it's the presence of good. Is the is the framework I was trying to use mm. when I was looking at this. So when, when we look at like consent, like absence of no and uh, mutuality, absence of harm, what would the presence of good added to that look like? Because then to me, it's a, it can be a Christian sexual ethic and without it being just legalistic or shaming, which is what we have had before. And so when looking at what is like, how do we express concern? The, the thing that has to be present is um, attention, 
to show concern for myself or a potential sexual partner, I have to be able to pay attention to what they're, where they're at emotionally, where I'm at emotionally, what's going on in our lives. Are they married? Then if I have sex with somebody who's in a monogamous marriage, I, I'm failing to show concern for the, their spouse, right? Mm. So, so it sort of allows us to talk about some of that stuff. It also um, helps us get out of some of the pitfalls of like hookup culture, yeah. you know, to say, no, it's, I'm not saying it's wrong for you to have sex with somebody who you haven't known very long, but how much concern can you show for them and make sure that they're in the right place because they could consent to something, but actually like if their mom just died and they're in this horrible place emotionally, it might not be the best thing for them. If you intuit that they're not in a, in a good emotional place, but they've given you a yes, you failed to show concern, you know? So um, that, that was my attempt. It, it was one of the hardest things. There were a couple parts of the book that were very difficult to puzzle out for me. Mm. And that was one of them. And, and I felt fine about where I landed because it was really just a starting place. I hope a lot of people take, take that and go different directions with it, kind of flush it out more in their own work, you know. I actually really liked that section of the book, Nadia, and I think the mm-hmm. um, the presence of good is a is a principle we should be bringing into play for all of the way the church talks about sex, because silence is mm-hmm. not pastoral, which is what your book does, is mm-hmm. point out just mm-hmm. the fact that people react to it so strongly, and so thank you for mm-hmm. opening these conversations. The silence mm-hmm. that we currently have, and we have similar rules in our church and in terms mm-hmm. of um, the ordained life um, to mm-hmm. to in our faithfulness and service document. And there's so much silence around it. Mm-hmm. And yet that to if we yeah. are actually going to look at the active presence of good, how much are we robbing people of their healthy sexuality right. Um, right. and sexual experience? That, you know, it's not just about prohibition. Right. That's right. I agree. And I think um, there is so much fear around that because we don't know where the lines. It's hard to know where you draw the lines. And so you just draw them with a very thick marker <laughs> as close to the thing as you can, you know, and because it is, it is hard and it's difficult when there, there's sexual behavior that, that um, might be perfectly healthy um, and lead to kind of flourishing for one person, but it wouldn't for me, Mm. you know, and so it makes paying attention. It takes a lot more effort than just having a list of thou shalt not, you know? Yeah. And you, you use a really helpful analogy at the start of the book, a story of someone in your congregation, um, Nadia, who, uh, drew a small, basically put their finger to their thumb for a small circle and said, this is the circle of how many people the general Christian sexual approach works for. This is how many people saving sex for a monogamous heterosexual marriage and everything is perfect after that. That's how few um, people that works for. And it is interesting because it is the only, the only approach given heterosexual marriage, no, no sex outside of that is the only approach given. And that is so clearly not acknowledging the reality of human beings as sexual beings, which is something. And I think, I think any pastoral theology has to have actual reality as its starting point. Mm. What's the actual reality of our people's lives. Right. And then what, what is it within our, our, our scriptures and our traditions and our liturgies and our shared prayers and our understanding of who God is that can help speak to that, that can bring comfort to people. Um, instead of starting with some abstract idea and saying this universally applies to all people, 
we don't care if it's hurting you or if it's applicable or if it works in any way because our loyalty is always to the idea instead. That's why my main premise is like, we, if the teachings of the church are harming people, and at least my research shows they are, um, then we should rethink the teachings, not mm. double down on them. We yes. should never be more loyal to an interpretation of a Bible verse or to a doctrine or to an idea than we are to people. You know, if, if when Jesus was asked, what, what's the greatest commandment? When Jesus was asked, what are the laws that, that are the most important to live by? He was like, love God and love your neighbor. Like this is, everything has to do with that. And instead we love the law, you know? Yeah. yeah. Peter, I'd like to bring you in on this because, you know, this is something that we have spoken around before um, sex and, and, and the body without maybe naming some of these things as, as directly as we are able to today. Why do you think in our tradition, you know, we, we sit on the progressive end of Christianity in our country, <clears throat> but why do you think even in our tradition, this is often so hard to actually name and talk about? Um, well, it's become a touchstone issue and it's seen as political, um, which is means that as soon as we start having the conversation, people talk about us dividing the church and causing havoc. Um, and also because I think this, you know, what Nadia is pointing us towards is, is that the whole framing is wrong. You know, some, somehow, somehow our expression of religion has become nihilist. Mm. It's about denying life, denying flourishing, um, and it, it sort of goes all the way back to that narrative frame that says we are uh, cursed and we have to try and struggle out of the cursed situation and Jesus sort of grabs us and, and flings us out of an otherwise cursed existence and, you know, and it's tied up with Augustine and his sort of early Manichaeism where he thought that sex was the way that bits of good got trapped in a dark, horrible world. Um, so, you know, there's a whole frame, there's a whole framing that's being questioned here. And, you know, people like Matthew Fox back in the 80s asked us to think about what, how would we recast the faith if we talked about original blessing rather than original curse? Mm. And, you know, this is, this is all about, um, whether, are, we, are we people who believe that we are called to help mm. each other flourish and that our existence is actually to be celebrated? Or, or are we to sort of grit our teeth, try not to fall into any pitfalls or sort of fall into fornication um, on the way so that we, we arrive at the pearly gates pure? And it even goes to the way we're treating the planet. You know, we, we, we don't want the planet to flourish. We don't want ourselves to flourish. We don't mm. want other people to flourish. There's this myth of scarcity. I mean, it's all this incredible network of negative expressions. Um, and I think sexuality is, the, in, in our day, it's sort of the, the, uh, the pivotal issue. And if we follow the path that Nadia is inviting us to, we're going to have to uh, recast the whole frame. And, you know, and I'm still, still, I still have dissonance in my head because I... I just didn't experience this growing up. You know, I grew up in a family that celebrated sex and sexuality, um, people's sexual uh, identity. Um, and because of that, we grew up with an ethic of you take sex really seriously. 
and mm. you take people really seriously. Mm. Um, so it wasn't a bound understanding of sexuality, mm. but it was one that took it really, really seriously mm. and about honouring people and honouring yourself by honouring other people. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, Nadia, I, I suppose something I just touching on what Peter spoke there about the, the when you look at the theological elements, a beautiful way I think that you articulate this is you actually use the parable of the talents um, to talk about what people have done, what the church has done with its sexuality at times. Can you just ex- uh, explain a little bit about that for, you know, and the, the whole of it is obviously in the book, but a little bit about how the parable of talents could be read as a, as a sexual parable potentially? God, if I can remember what I said, <laughs> I, I, read, I wrote that a couple of years ago. Let's see. I'll try. From what I remember of that parable, uh, you know, these the, there were people who were given different amounts of treasure. All of them were large amounts of money, but they just varied. So all of them were given treasure and asked to be sort of good stewards of it, of this gift. Mm. And um, the first couple people invested it and it, and it grew. And then the, the master came back and he was like, you know, good, good and faithful servant. Good on you, as you would say. And so um, then there was one who, uh, and this is the only one that it is said, they were afraid of the master. Uh, they thought the master was capricious and angry. And they buried the, this treasure that they were given. And so uh, thinking they'd just be so mad if we misused it. So we'll just bury it. Right. And so the master came back and the master was, was angry, but because they, they wasted it, they didn't do anything good with it. And so I thought, if you think of it as our sexuality, I think our view of God is going to, or our, our view of God is going to very much affect our view of our, sexual nature and Mm -hmm. so if we believe that god um you know created us as sexual beings but mostly as like a passive aggressive test of our willpower you know that (laughs) we're only actually (laughs) we're only actually allowed to enjoy it under very specific circumstances and if you even think about it outside that circumstance he'll be very upset and disappointed with you so um if that's our view of god that's going to be our view of sexuality but um but what if our view of god is that this is like a huge gift and it doesn't and and the gift is given to different people in different ways not everyone has the same exact thing Mm. and yet every single one of it is a gift. And um, maybe if we have a view that God is a giver of gifts and um, God did not have to create us to experience such pleasure, how extraordinary. So that, that's a very different way of thinking about our sexuality if we think about God differently. Yeah. yeah. No, what I said, yeah, I think that, that's vaguely. <laughs> and I think, I don't think that's beautiful. It speaks also to the way that people are, are trained in the church, really, particularly women. Women are told, too, that their bodies are a bit dangerous and it's really your fault if because men are constantly yes. out they're looking for sex and and if women dress a certain way or get drunk all of those things it's there for Mm -hmm. the woman's fault um and so all of that is heaped on young women and i'm hoping it's getting better Um, oh yeah after this week no that's true we're having a bad week in australia yeah um but the the upshot is that you get taught to repress sexuality which is what you were describing too nadi earlier is you know saying you shut it away it's it's actually the source 
for me, recognize it as my vitality too. It's that yes. source, not just of spirituality, is centered around, is very close right. to sexuality as well, hence the competition thing. And uh, mm-hmm. But it's also vitality. But if we say, well, I'm going to shut this in a small room in my house, in my, mm-hmm. my you know, inner being, mm-hmm. shut the door firmly and just mm-hmm. pretend it's not there, then that it's actually really hard, that, that idea of the mm-hmm. talent, it's really hard to be able to be your full self because you're fragmented or you're mm-hmm. haunted house, really, because there's that thing shutting your cupboard down there that that you're not allowing out so and yet the church gives no instruction that the world is full of single people too and people who are celibate sometimes for good reasons sometimes Mm because it's enforced but there is you know that the church is giving no instruction because of its silence on what it means Mm -hmm. to live as a sexual being throughout your life you know, nonstop, yeah. and that there's, uh, you yeah. know, the yet there is plenty of encouragement given to shut it away, and actually, right. what that does is rob us of life. Yeah. And that's right. what becomes toxic and demonic as well, because it starts to exercise mm-hmm. a hidden power mm-hmm. and starts to manifest in ways that destroy people's lives. That's right. No, it absolutely does. Because <clears throat> I always, for instance. Um, I wanted to, I would love for that somebody to do a study that looks at different denominations and you're looking at the, what is the prevalence of sexual predation and sexual misconduct but in different traditions? Mm-hmm. And how does it correlate to if women have access to all levels of power and authority within that church or not? Yeah how then does the sexual predation and misconduct towards children and women differ mm. among denominations where women have access to all levels of power and authority as opposed to those that don't mm. now i'm not a statistician but i have a fucking hunch <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i think you're right yeah. yeah i suspect there'll be a direct correlation yeah yeah yeah, I, it's there's so much in this conversation. Um, you know, we could go for for hours and hours on it because there's so many different elements of this to un- unpick. And and as I see it, especially after reading the book Nadia, it's just confirmed it for me that for most young people who grew up in the church, certainly in our culture, I imagine in America too, this is the biggest issue. Every youth group boys' night was about masturbation. Every girls' night, I'm told, was about being desirable and femininity. This is, it's all that you get from, I I couldn't tell you really anything else that I took from my childhood faith tradition outside of what to do with the body and sex and desire and sexuality. And, and every conversation I have, this seems to be the case. It was this mind blowing moment in my early twenties when I realized Jesus really didn't speak about sex all that much, um, that this is all sort of being confected afterwards. So I, I just want to mention um, at this point of the conversation as well that I know there's so many differing stories. There's so many people will be bringing all their own baggage to this, um, to this area, to this conversation. So I just, I, I guess I want to ask you in your experience now, since the book's come out with your, the people in your congregation, how have you seen people heal on this? How have you seen people make small steps towards connecting the frayed wires and, and actually mm. being able to move from, you know, whether they've felt shamed or guilty or they've done the right thing and it didn't work for them or whatever their baggage is in this area. Mm. How have you seen mm. people start to, to heal towards mm. a, a healthy, sexually flourishing life that mm. they were made for? 
Well, first of all, I, I'm not, I don't pastor the House for All Sinners and Saints anymore. I, I left two and a half years ago. But um, I did receive a text message a few months ago from a couple who I wrote about in the book where um, they were talking about how they did everything right and they waited till marriage and, and it, it was disastrous, like trying to figure out their sex lives. And they had so much guilt and shame and it was just, it was, it was, they felt robbed, you know, and angry. So the, that couple who I wrote about, and I'm being very careful because I changed their names in the book. So I tried to mess that up. But um, she texted me because I had said to them that, and maybe I wrote this part in the book. I can't remember. I had actually said to them as your pastor, I really hope, that you guys can figure the sex thing out. Like, I want you guys to have that part of your life be like an excellent part of your life. Like, I want you to experience freedom and, I, and a lack of self-consciousness and a flourishing sexually in your relationship. Like, that's a pastoral concern. I want that for you. And I, I really hope you guys figure this out. And I think you can. And she, I swear God, texted me probably four months ago and said, hey, Pastor Nadia, I hope this isn't weird, but I just wanted you to know, like we went into couples counseling and we did, and it was the best thing we could do was not go to a Christian counselor. And, um, <laughs> and, and I want you to know that like, I feel like we've figured it out. Like we're, we're having really great sex and it's amazing. And I'm so glad you encouraged it. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess you don't really hear that as like a past pastoral care conversation because it could go sideways very easily. So I'm not being glib about that. I mean, I think there are ways that that could be interpreted as creepy and inappropriate. So I'm not saying, Hey, go out and have that conversation with your parishioners, but um, it was incredible to get that text from her. Yeah. Um, so I think often, honest to God, I think often all people need is a reframing for yeah. to start on a different path. It's not that complicated. That's and permission funny. giving. I mean, yeah. I have this friend, I don't know if you've ever read Sarah Miles books, uh, but uh, she's a lovely author. She's maybe she's like 10, 12 years older than me. But she was the first like sort of older female friend I had who, again, um, like yourself, Peter, not raised Christian. She's like a middle-aged, she, she converted middle-aged. And so she doesn't have the baggage. And she was such a non-anxious presence around sex and not creepy, not salacious, not embarrassing, but just not anxious and so natural and matter of fact about it that it was a model for me because then I could become I could become more like that because I saw it. So having possibility models, I think is really important. Yeah, great point. I, I was just going to say too, like it's also about that corporate backbone that we, we were uh, a shared conversation last night where um, the priest was talking about developing as the church a corporate backbone. And I think mm -hmm. this is one area, this is one subject. Let's just get, mm -hmm. what if we actually open the conversation? Let's just get mm -hmm. brave about it and start because it's impacting right. us so much. Mm -hmm. Let's just find some courage and have the honest conversations. Yeah. yeah, we'll be okay. I was scared just to say that we started having these sort of, um, uh, 
uh, we, we called them center salons, but like an adult ed program on, on Wednesday nights where people would come. And we talked about sex and we had a, um, somebody who was a sex educator in the congregation who helped lead, lead those conversations. But I'm just going to be honest. I was terrified to do it because I could think of all the ways it would go sideways. All I was even, to be honest, thinking about oh, a couple kind of creepy uh, guys in the congregation and are they going to not read the room and actually say things that are going to make people extremely uncomfortable. It like, it's their chance to be creepy or yeah. something. You know what I mean? And I was terrified and it was fine. It was fine. People were grateful. They were appropriate. It was fine. Mm. When he brought it out of the darkness and shone a light on it, and mm-hmm. it was real life conversation rather than the secretive stuff that yeah, yeah. drove so many people. Well, they, they, you're 100% right, Peter. The whole Jungian idea of the shadow that I know we've explored before is such an integral part of this. I, I was just having a conversation the other day with, with someone who confided in me a, a bit of a sexual secret of their history with this understanding, this expectation. This I don't even know them that well, but they were saying it, expecting it was going to change everything about how I thought about them. And yeah. instantly I could see the narratives that have run through their mind for the past, you know, however many years since it occurred that every day they've told themselves, if people knew this about me, if this got out, I would be, no one would respect me anymore. No one want to be around me anymore. And it it just occurred to me how many people have those narratives running every single day and how often those narratives are reinforced by their tradition. Yeah. It breaks my heart to hear things like that like people yeah. carrying around burdens that, that there's no reason and they're doing it alone. Yes. Nobody knows, you know, I, I mean, if there's any, what I consider like a truly priestly impulse, it's to have your heart break when you hear a story like that, you yeah, know, yeah. I mean, I was, I was watching this TV show called alone where they drop people off in the wilderness and they have like 10 survival tools and they have to make you know build shelter and find food and I, I find it endlessly fascinating because I, I find any form of physical discomfort to be a crisis so I, I think these people are extraordinary but um so this one woman is a police officer and it was like her second night there there's no there's no camera crews they're filming everything themselves right so they are alone in the wilderness it's very Lenten and uh <laughs> this woman was a she had been a cop and it was like her second night alone. And when you're alone like that, everything comes flooding in mm-hmm. regrets, you know, conflicts, all that stuff. And she was just telling a story about early in her career, she was getting off. It was like her shift was over and a call came in about there was an active shooter and she wasn't even supposed to be working anymore. She hesitated for a sec, turned the car around, went. And by the time she got there, they were pulling this woman out on a stretcher. And she has cared so clearly, you could tell, carried the burden of thinking, had I not hesitated, that girl would still be alive. And my my heart just broke. I was like, you need a priest. Like people are burdened by things and they need confession and absolution and to have somebody be a, a... this loving compassionate presence to the things that they think are so horrible about themselves because then you know they can be freed so 
I'm yeah. always amazed of the power of of what people perceive as sexual sins to never go away. And it's because yeah. it's not aired. The number of people that are sitting in our congregation, for instance, who have felt they've committed adultery and they, they hold it, they never confess it, and it stays as this burden always. Mm-hmm. And it seems to, and it, it's like a marker on their whole life. And, and it, you know, it doesn't need to be. Totally. You know, there's this, and, and that's, I mean, one example, and there are so many others too that mm-hmm. are, it, it seems like there's the things you're allowed to talk about and the things you're not allowed to. And right, the things that, right. that you're not allowed to are the ones that are dictating your life yeah. course. That's why I started a podcast called yeah. The Confessional. Because I wanted people to come on and tell me the thing that still burdens yeah. them, you know? Yeah. So. And that's been diminished too. You know, turned either into a functional sort of <laughs> this thing in the Catholic tradition or... In the Protestant tradition, done away with because we can confess our sins direct to God, um, but that doesn't work. Um, you really do need the embodied no. experience of someone saying, "Okay, I've heard that. Now let's get on with your life." Yeah. Mm. Without yeah, the, like, you without can't free yourself. No, you can't free yourself. And the self-loathing that um, so many of those sins. Uh, creating people then they just perpetuate later they just do it over and over again because they're of no value yeah and i i know obviously nadi the whole book is about a sexual reformation and you know people will see when they read it that at the start you say we don't just need you know some minor tweaks we need to basically blow the whole thing up with um you use you use better language than i do in that particular area but we do need to blow the whole thing up and start again and look at actual human flourishing and you know, look at how we raise children on this, how we give the sex talk, how we navigate through these areas, um, how we don't fall off either the abstinence or indulgence end of the continuum, which I, I know you go through as well. There is so many amazing things in it. Um, ultimately, you say we need a new theology of pleasure, uh, yeah. which is just a fascinating area as well. What what do we think pleasure to be? Is it a temptation to try to get get us off the edge or something? Or is it part of the joy of this life? It is such, such rich work. And I suppose, I know we've got to let you go, but just as a, as a parting question, what is your hope for what the role of our tradition can be in regards to, to sex and the body going forward? Mm. Well, I mean, I do think it's going to take a blowing it, blowing it up. I think a few simple amendments to what we have is never going to really get us there. Um, and I know that's terrifying because it, it's interesting because when I was on tour with this book, sometimes I always do live Q&A with people or I call it Q&O, questions and opinions, because I don't really have any answers, but I have a lot of opinions. So it feels, it feels more honest. Um, but but there would always be often it was a little bit older person say but what what if the what if people just do whatever feels good and uh, it was pretty consistent that an older person would would ask this question and i thought it was fascinating because i have yet to find somebody who that's their working ethic of their life (laughs) that i i literally just do anything that feels good and i don't care if it hurts me or other people and but it, it so it's not i don't think it's an active ethic that is in reality but it's an active fear that is in us that if we don't have any boundaries whatsoever everything's going to devolve into chaos and i think 
I think having a soft structure like concern can and say, okay, we know we're going to adhere to something like this, then it allows us to really analyze stuff. And there are things that I, I'm hesitant about. Like I'm, I'm not really into the polyamory thing and a lot of people are pretty heavy into it. And I'm like, I don't think it's like sexual immorality. I just think it's gluttony. I just think more is more, but whatever. Um, so, <laughs> but so for me, and maybe it's because I'm a 52-year-old woman and it's just hard for me to conceive of it. But, uh, you know, we're going to have different parts of us that resist things. And that's okay. The point isn't to see how okay we can be with every crazy thing. Um, I think if you just start with where's the harm, how honest can we be about where harm exists? And then in a pastoral concern way, say, where did it come from? And how can we do better? How can we tell different stories? How can we free ourselves? That That's a little better than going, hey, let's get rid of every single rule and guideline around all of this stuff and say none of it matters. Mm. So Yeah, the third way. The third way of our, of our tradition is always. Yeah. Well, Nadia, look, it's uh, just so amazing. I personally feel like I want to thank you so much for this book. Um, and, um, and thank you so much for joining us on the podcast as well. Oh, yeah, I'm happy to. I'm so glad that it, that it blessed you, really. I mean, it's, in, it's incredible when I get to hear those stories. So I'm, I'm delighted. And maybe when the world settles down, I'll, I'll find my way back down to you guys. <laughs> That'd be amazing. <laughs> love We'd love you. to have right. a conversation in person at some stage as well. Thanks so much, Nadia. Thank, Thank you. you. And as Nadia does drop out of the Zoom conversation now, uh, we thought we would record a little bit uh, of just an ending of this episode, the three of us here. Um, Sue, because obviously we know that this episode is one that might uh, might bring stuff up for people. This, you know, this is not a theological necessarily conversation that you can in, engage with intellectually or not. This is going to, in one form or another, connect with the lived experience of everyone who who engages with it. So there is, I guess, a pastoral, that's what we were talking about, a pastoral sense of where to go from here with this stuff that I just thought um, it'd be good to, to explore. Yeah, yeah. This is certainly an everyone conversation. You know, we're all sexual beings uh, from the day we're born to the day we die. And uh, many of us will have been affected by the church's teachings or lack of teaching mm. around this. Um, it may have brought up some old wounds. So uh, what I guess we're just recommending is that if you have, uh, you might be in a church with a trusted trusted clergy person, trusted pastor, um, you know, if, if that is someone who you trust, talk to them more, talk to people in your life who are wise or get in touch with us and we may be able to direct you towards some people it would be good to talk to about because as mm. we flagged in the podcast, we can't do this stuff alone. We actually need um, an embodied presence with us as we're negotiating such difficult territory. Yeah, absolutely. You can get in touch with us via the On The Way Facebook page. Peter, any um, parting words from you on this? I mean, it is something that we, I know the three of us have spoken about wanting to explore this territory for some time um, and been not apprehensive, but have known the scale and the scope of what we are actually discussing here and how much it is foundational wounding and baggage for so many in different ways. But just before we wrap up the conversation, I'm sure we'll have others that flow from it, but any parting words from you? Um, I, yeah, thank you, Dom. Um, certainly, we do need to realise how we are, as a, human beings, are integrated creatures. We're made in the image of God. God is one. We also are one. The word one means to be integrated. 
And so our sexuality is part of who we are, as Sue said. So we're sexual beings. And if we don't attend to some aspect of our being, then it can really lead us down the wrong path and can actually destroy us. Um, I think many of the problems our whole society has, you know, this is a societal problem as well as a church problem. Many of the problems we have in our society are due to the fact that people have not integrated their sexuality mm. into their living. And so either they become enslaved to it or they uh, become loathsome of themselves because of their desires. And all of that sort of stuff just takes control of our life. And so the plea I would have is if any of this has stirred up questions in you, please pursue it so that you can find the place where you are discovering that you are an integrated person made in the image of God. And through that process of integration, uh, we will learn how to flourish. And we have to do it. We have to, and we have to do it, in, as Sue said, in an embodied way. Mm. Yeah. We need conversation partners, and I really hope this podcast will enable a whole heap of people to have one of those emperor's new clothes moments where they say, "Oh, you too." You know, it's it's a it, this is the Me Too movement of human human sexuality. We all need to say "Me too," mm. and then find our common humanity in the lived experience that includes our sexuality yeah absolutely and uh, look a, a great starting point if if you're not sure where to go next on this particular matter would be to get a copy of the book it is shameless a sexual reformation um by nadia bolsweber um you can get the audiobook as well which is beautifully um narrated by nadia herself uh it will be something that will open um conversations and and open maybe potential pathways forward as well so thank you for for listening to this episode we know it um you know it's it's an area we haven't gone before but we hope that it's something that is meaningful that is life-giving and uh, as always is good news thank you so much sue thank you peter thank you Dom. Thanks, Dom.